This morning, I have the privilege of introducing to you Jones Enzi. Did I say that right? Yes, I practiced that. Jones Enzi. When I, uh, my wife asked, how do you spell that? And she said, there's no, there's no uh, vowels in there. That can't be the right spelling. So um, anyway, we are so glad that you're here. So let me introduce you real fast. Jones is here with his wife and three children. They are from Central Africa, just east of Nigeria. Jones is currently a seminary student at Southern, but he also serves as an elder at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And so we we're thrilled that you're here. And he told me this week what he's preaching on, Psalm 63, which is I sent him a song, which is one of my favorite songs. Mm -hmm. I sent that to you. Yeah. But um, we're thrilled that you're here. Their plans are in December. They graduate. And about a year from then, they will be moving back home to teach pa to pastor and to teach pastors uh, back in their home country. But their current uh, country is in civil war, and so they can't go back uh, for some time. So I know as he preaches, you'll be praying for him and praying for his family and his future. So thank you. We're glad you're here. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, Crossing Church. It is a great honor and pleasure and joy for me and my family to be worshiping with you all this morning. Uh, and... Uh, just seeing the beauty of what God is doing in your midst and in the singing this morning and your eagerness to receive the word as was told me by a friend of mine who has had the opportunity to preach here before uh, just created in me such a desire to, to worship with you. So I'm so thankful for God's mercy in Christ that gives this very unlikely opportunity for, for an African to be standing here with you worshiping. So. Um, as our brother just read for us from Psalm 63, that's the text that I will be walking through with you this morning. And uh, if you don't mind, let me just open with a word of prayer, asking the Lord's help in this. Our Lord, we come to you this morning, and uh, I just pray that the sentiment and the, 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 the impulse that we see running through this psalm will be ignited in a deeper way in each of our hearts that like david we will begin to say our souls thirst for you our flesh faints for you lord we want to be a people who follow hard after you who 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 resists the seduction of the fleeting pleasures of the world and who treasure christ above all things and i pray that you would use the word that you enable me to bring this morning to that end, in my heart and in the hearts of your people, for Christ's glory and fame. I ask this in his name. Amen. So generally, when you ask somebody or when somebody says they are a Christian, they, they would usually mean one of two things, generally speaking. For some people, being a Christian means that they do things that we would regularly regard as Christian, like they go to church, or they have been baptized, or they walk down the aisle, or they regularly participate in the Lord's Supper, or know some missionary, and, and they, they are related to, some, to that missionary in some way. And, 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 but for other people, when they say they are a Christian, they mean a lot more than just physical and external things that they do. For some people, when they say they are a Christian, what they mean can be summed up in the words of the Apostle Peter in John chapter 6, verse 68. 
You remember when Jesus had told the people that if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have life in you. People said, that's a hard teaching. Who can, who can receive that? And the Bible says many of his disciples turned away from him at that time. And he turns around and sees the 12 disciples still standing there. And he says, have you not gone away too? And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So, when, so for some people, when they say they are a Christian, they are saying they have seen Jesus and received the word of eternal life from Jesus. And they just cannot turn away from Jesus no matter what happens, even if the whole world turns away from Jesus. Because they know Jesus has the very words of eternal life. He is himself the, 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 the word of eternal life. And for a heart that can speak like that, for a heart that is disposed to speak in that kind of way, being a Christian means a lot more than doing external things, even though it does not mean less. They will do external things. They will come to church. They will get baptized. They will participate at the Lord's Supper. But that will not be all that defines for them what it means to be Christian. For such people, being a Christian means that they are clinging to God in every season of their lives because God has become their very life. For them, for hearts that speak like this, they know that their joy and stability and sense of purpose in life depends on their communion and fellowship with God. And for that reason, they would usually be very ardently in pursuit of God. They will be ferociously committed to pushing out of their lives anything that will disrupt communion and fellowship with God because they know God is their very life. And Psalm 63 is one of those portions of scripture that just so tell us in plain language what it looks like for a heart of a human being who was lost in sin and depraved and been awakened to new life to begin to thirst for God and hunger for God and go hard after God. And this psalm shows us at least two key things that should mark a life that is committed to pursuing God, a life that treasures fellowship with God and communion with God above all things. It shows us the things you need, what should be going on in your life for that to be true, for you to be able to be in a lifelong pursuit of God. And then next, it shows us the motivations for being in a lifelong pursuit of God. So first, let me just zoom in on the prerequisites, what your life needs to be able to, to be in a continuous pursuit of God. The first thing that we see here that David tells us about is a thirsty soul. Look right there on the face of verse 1. David says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. That's where I get it. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The soul thirsting for God and the flesh fainting for God speak to the fact that David's whole person has been liberated from the fleeting pleasures of this life. He's been freed in his heart to want to enjoy God above everything else that God created. Nothing competes in David's heart for enjoyment with God. That's why he would say his soul thirsts. For God, he knows God to be the true satisfaction of his soul. In the words of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, he is one who has come to know that God exists 
and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's the posture of David's heart and soul. That's what characterizes David in his inner being. If you contrast what David is saying here with what God spoke to the people of Israel through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13, you will see a world of difference between what's going on in David's heart and what was going on in the hearts of the Israelites. In Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13, the Bible says, God speaking through Jeremiah about Israel, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God is indicting his people for seeking to get satisfaction in, in their souls in things that God created instead of in God himself. And that is so such a horrific evil that God says the heavens should be appalled and shocked that the people he created and sought to bring into a covenant with himself have turned their backs on him and sought to satisfy their souls in the things he created instead of in him, the creator. In the words of Romans 1, they are exchanging the truth of God for a lie and seeking to serve and worship created things instead of the creator. And God says, we, the heaven should be appalled at that. That's the exact opposite of what's going on in David's heart. David says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So David is using figurative language to say that his ultimate satisfaction is in God. It is, it is about God that his life is consumed. Now there's a crucial detail, detail here in verse 1 that I don't want to pass over too quickly. It says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. If David just said, Oh God, my soul seeks you earnestly and my flesh faints for you, he would have perfectly made the point. But why does he slow down to not only say, oh God, I thirst for you, but says, oh God, you are my God. Is there, is there that impulse in your own heart that thinks of God as your God, that you know yourself in a covenant, unbreakable covenant relationship with the living God? David is saying, what defines me is not my kingship. If you take away my kingship and I have God, I am still more than satisfied. What defines me is not the military exploits I have had or the palace I have had or the fame I have. My importance, my worth is defined in terms of my relationship with God. That's who David is. So this, this, this is to say that if your heart is thirsting for God, you can work for money and have money, but money will never define you. You can have property. You can have all kinds of things, but those things will never define you. It will always be God. That's what David is talking about here. Oh God, you are my God. That's where my life begins. That's where my life is lived. It's that you are my God. It is your being and your steadfast love towards me that defines who I am. Isn't it interesting? You know, the superscription, the title of this psalm says David spoke the meditation when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And a wilderness is a wilderness, a place where there is no water, a place where there is dryness and aridity. There is a, a cup of cold, a, a, a cold drink of water will be like gold in a place like that. And David 
instead of cursing and complaining as the Israelites did when they were wandering through the wilderness under Moses after the deliverance from Egypt, David sees the dryness of the wilderness of Judah and instead sees that that reflects the thirst of his soul for God. See, a soul that is thirsty for God will be pointed more to God even by the happenings around them, by the things they see with their physical eyes. He is in a desert, and as he sees the dryness in the desert, that points him to the thirst in his soul, the thirst that is raging in his own soul for God. This captures something of the words of our Lord when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the great promise is, for they shall be satisfied. This kind of thirst transcends geographical location. You don't have to be in a certain particular place to experience this if your heart has been brought into that kind of posture by the grace of God. David is miles away from the temple. And you know, in the, in the Old Testament, people knew that there was a special presence of God to bless at the temple. And here David is, many miles away removed from the temple, and yet his heart is thirsting for God. His heart is wanting more of God. That is to say, this kind of worship, this kind of thirst for God does not, is not limited to when you wake up in the morning to read your Bible, or pray, or do devotions with your family, or come to church on Sunday morning. It's supposed to mark you as you drive to work, as you do whatever you do, as you live through this life. Your heart should be thirsting for God and seeking for God. There should be a thirst raging in your soul for God. Do you know something of this? Do you know something of this kind of hunger and desire and longing for God? Now, I know that life ebbs and flows. It will be the case that some days, some weeks of your life, you will say like the, like, like the psalmist says, my soul, why so damn cast hope in God? So there will be days when, when, when you feel like the, this kind of thirst is under attack in your life. But you can, you can tell from the psalm that the person saying my soul is downcast understands God did not make him to live there. That's why he's saying my soul hope in God. See, so this kind of thirst is supposed to mark those who are aiming for the new heavens and the new earth. So you need a soul that is thirsty for God in this kind of way. To be able to be living in communion and pursuit of God. But that's not all you need. David tells us something in verse 2. And that is a beholding eye. A, an eye that sees God for whom he is. Let me read verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. David's worship in the temple fed his worship of God away from the temple. When David was in the temple, he worshiped God like we are here this Sunday morning together with other brothers and sisters worshiping. That kind of worship happened in David's life. But again, it did not end there. Whenever he left the temple, he was always still worshiping. So the worship he did in the temple would strengthen and empower private worship away from the temple and the private worship away from the temple always prepared him to come back and see more of God. David lived in the Old Testament. He would need to go to the temple and see the priest and see sacrifices offered. But you and I are living at a time when in God's power and covenant faithfulness, 
All of the shadows of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in the real person, Jesus Christ. We do not need to see God through the shadows of the temple or through the shadows of animal sacrifices or priests descended from the line of Aaron. We have seen one who has come in greater power and greater glory in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the true priest. He is the true temple. He is the true sacrifice that has come for our sins. And amazingly enough, through faith in him, you and I, we ourselves become the temple of the Holy Spirit through faith in the true temple. You and I become a royal priesthood through faith in the true priest. And we have the opportunity to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God through Jesus because he is the ultimate sacrifice. So you and I have beheld greater glory and greater power than David ever saw. Isn't it true? God, Paul says to the Ephesians that the power that is at work in believers is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the kind of power we have been brought into. That's the power at work in our lives. That's beyond any comparison to what David ever saw when he said, I have beheld your glory and power in the sanctuary. You remember uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are in, a, in, an, in an epoch of beholding glory. And it's not the kind of glory that Moses saw and would need to cover his face and was fading away. Instead, the glory we have been shown is that is ever increasing until it climaxes when our Lord appears in power and glory. That's why it says we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Or oh, in the words of the Apostle John in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what you and I have seen. So I'm saying for you to be living a life that is in an ardent pursuit of God in your work, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your finances, in just every domain of your life, you need a soul that is thirsty for God. You also need an eye that is beholding the glory of God and becoming more like the Son of God. But that's not all. David also shows us in verse 5 another thing that has to be true of you, and it is this. It is a satisfied soul. Isn't that amazing? In one psalm, in one psalm, David says his soul is thirsty and then says his soul is satisfied. See, that sounds like a contradiction, but that's the beauty of the way God works in the life of a person. The more we know God, the more we know we need to know God. So the thirst in our souls for God after we have been satisfied in, in God are not contradictory. The satisfaction in God engenders more hunger for God. Those who are ever satisfied knowing God have never known him in the first place. That's why David can say, my soul thirsts for you. But again, he says, I am satisfied in God. So you need a thirsty soul, a beholding eye, but also a satisfied soul. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
this, my soul will be satisfied. You could also say, is satisfied. And I say that because the emphasis here is not on when the soul gets satisfied. It's on the momentous reality that a human being lost in Adam has found life in Yahweh, the living God, and has become satisfied in him. The NASB translated in the present, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. To know God and be satisfied in him is a prerequisite for seeking more of God in your everyday life. Coming from a culture where uh, the economy is weak and everything, I mean, so many things don't seem to be working right into a culture like here in the U.S., where there are so many different blessings, and, and th th this country is blessed with so many different kinds of foods, imagery about food may not strike you quite as powerfully because here people tend to want to stay away from certain kinds of food in order to stay in shape. That was not the case with the Israelites. That's certainly not the case with Cameroonians. Uh, so, so I want to take you through two texts in the Old Testament so that you get something of what David is saying here when he talks about his soul is satisfied as with rich Food. So in, Psalm, in Deuteronomy 32, we read of God's fatherly care for Israel. And this is what Moses said. The Lord alone guided you. No foreign God was with you, with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. And he ate the produce of the field, that's Israel. And he suckled him with honey out of the rock and the oil out of the flinty rock curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goat with the very finest of the wheat and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. That's the kind of food God fed Israel with after he delivered them from, e from Egypt. So he gave them food that will so satisfy their appetite that their appetite would be somewhat numbed to anything else you call food. They were so satisfied with the kind of food God gave them, they would not need anything else. The same kind of logic is used in Proverbs 27, 7, where the Bible says, He who is hungry, he who is full, loots food. But to the one who is hungry, even what is bitter, tastes sweet. See, there's, there's a sense in which you can eat and be satisfied and the food you have eaten numbs out your appetite that you put something into your mouth. It, doesn't, it just doesn't feel like food anymore. But if you are hungry, you could taste a bitter thing and think it's sweet because your, your, your body is craving food. So when David applies this language to his relationship with God, David means that God has so satisfied him that nothing in the world is seeking to take God's place in his heart. He is fully satisfied in God. And you and I know the story of David, don't we? When David began to let his eyes wander and would not live in the realm of this satisfaction in God and was walking on the rooftop of his palace and saw a woman bathing and would not insists his soul is satisfied in God, he lost it and eventually committed adultery and committed murder. And there were all these sins, this litany of sins that followed. So you see, to not live in the realm of being satisfied in God is suicidal for somebody who is seeking to pursue God and to land safe on the sea of eternity. But we praise God because there is a true and greater David who came and who would have 
several hours con of conversation with a woman who had multiple relationships, but will not have one millisecond of a lustful thought, and that is Jesus Christ. He said to his disciples after they brought food to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish it. Jesus knows what it is like to be satisfied in God, to have doing the will of God be the, the food for his soul. Is that the case for you? When we are in Jesus, doing God's will becomes food for our souls so that what the world advertises to us, the commercials that the world presents to us and say, hey, come and get satisfaction here, will never entice us away from God. So you need not only a thirsty soul and a beholding eye, you also need a satisfied soul. But, but there is yet another thing you need, and it is a meditating heart. Verse 6, David says this, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. So David remembers God, and he meditates. And he, don't forget, David is speaking this in the wilderness. He's not lying in the comfort of his palace. He is in the wilderness, but he, he says this in a way that even though being in the wilderness, that was not just a, 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 an incidental happening in his life. His life was marked by lying down and thinking of God, meditating on God. The life of the mind, what you think about, what you ruminate on, what you let your mind keep doing, sorry about that, is very critical for your life of fellowship and communion with God. David understood this. Doesn't the Bible tell us, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind? Your mind should not just be thinking about whatever it wants to think about. You should condition your mind and bring it into remembering God and remembering who he is and meditating on that. When we meditate on the truths of God, that shapes our hearts so that out of that heart will overflow praise and thanksgiving and words that bless other people. Sometimes it's often struck me as amazing. There are some brothers and sisters you are with, whatever they say points you to God. When they open their mouths, what comes out reminds you of some beautiful dimension of God's love and power and majesty. When you see them react to situations, it points you right away to Christ. That doesn't just come out of nowhere. It comes from remembering God, from meditating on God, from le letting the truth about God shape your mind and heart. When that is true, you are going to be a conduit of spiritual blessings to your wife and husband, to your children, to your workplace, to the church family that you are a part of. Because you will not react to situations in the power of the flesh. You will react to situations in the power that comes from a mind that has been subdued by the beautiful satisfaction that we have in God. So you need a heart that is meditating on the truths of God's word to be on track, always pursuing God and thirsting for God. I'm saying God calls us to live in the realm of pursuing him with all our might and all our strength and all the energies in our bodies and soul. And to do that, we need a soul that is thirsty for him. We need an eye that has beheld and is beholding the glory of God. We need a soul that has been satiated, satisfied in God, and we need a heart that is meditating on God. 
but, but what motivations does David teach us here? Yeah, we, we, we have to be pursuing God. But where do we draw the strength to do that? How do we get energized to stay on, on the pursuit of God? David gives us at least two things. The first thing is quite an amazing thing, David says. He says in verse, in, in verse 2, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. The first part of verse 3 says what we would never know except by revelation. It says, the steadfast love of God is better than life. Those who have learned this truth, that your life is less valuable than being loved by God. Just, just getting it into your mind, that being loved by God, having the smile of God on you, is more important than staying alive. It's a critical motivation for that because people do everything they want to do or they can afford to do to stay alive. And so many people do things that are evil to stay alive because they don't realize being loved by God, living in the realm of the smile of God upon you is more important than staying alive. And the devil knows this and would often use it to tempt us. Don't you remember the temptation of Job? The second wave of calamities that struck the life of Job and his family came on the basis of this kind of argument that the devil made before God. In Job chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, the devil says to God, Skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The devil understands human beings value their lives above everything else. Only those who have been satisfied in God have learned that there is something better than life. And that thing is the steadfast love of God. The Apostle Paul could say, to me, to live is Christ's, to die is gain. There is no worldly logic that can explain that kind of statement. It is impossible for a fallen human being in Adam to say to die is gain if Christ has not satisfied them with himself. So to know in your mind and fix it in your heart that to be loved by God is more important than having your life is a powerful motivation for seeking satisfaction in God and for living a life of a constant pursuit for God. And this is not a, a one-time occurrence in the Bible. The Lord Jesus said, if anyone would come after me and will not hate his own father and mother and brothers and sisters and says, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Isn't it amazing? The very life God has given us can come in the way of our pursuit of God. And it takes being satisfied in God. It takes understanding that God is, is worth more than the very life that we live. For you to stay growing in pursuing God and in thirsting for him and in going hard after him. The next motivation that David uh, states for us is the fact that God is our security. Because when you say it is 
more valuable to be loved by God than to stay alive. That could be unsettling. So what about my life? Like I can get killed anytime or whatever. Or, or if, if you say that and God calls me to become a missionary and sends me to Afghanistan and there are suicide bombers and blow me off to death, what about that? You know, you could, you could have those kinds of questions running through your mind or, or just anything could happen. I could get cancer or whatever. Like what, what, what do I think about my life in terms of security then? And David doesn't leave that question unanswered. Verse 7. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. That's what David says. Don't forget, he is in the wilderness of Judah. He is a fugitive in his own country and is running from enemies. Because you see him, he talks about enemies pursuing his soul later on in the psalm. And yet he says... In the shadow of the wings of God, he sings for joy. That's a statement of security. The, the phrase, the shadow of the wings of God, is used throughout the book of Psalms to speak of God as a covering over his people, as a protection around his people, as a shelter around his people. So David is not thinking in terms of poor me, I could just, I am at the mercy of circumstances, anything could happen to me. No, he knows the powerful majesty of God. And his mighty right hand is deployed to protect me. Nothing will happen to me unless the Lord allows it. He is my security. That's what David is talking about here. He says, in the shadow of God's wings, I sing for joy. No one can fellowship with God if they think they are secure in themselves. If they think they are able to keep them, themselves secure. No one will be able to fellowship with God. Because a person has to come to terms with their own depravity and their own helplessness to turn to God. For those who feel secure with money and their good health and, and whatever it is, they will tend to set themselves up against God. But that's not all. If you are feeling despair and feeling insecure and feeling like your life is a candle in the wind and can be blown out any time, you will also not be in pursuit of God because you will be overwhelmed by worry of losing your life any time. So David is not there at all. He is one who has confronted his helplessness, his insecurity, and not stopped at the reality of his helplessness and insecurity, but has gone beyond that to seeking refuge in God. So he could be driven away from the palace, and he is in the wilderness of Judah, and yet say, in the shadow of your wings... I sing for joy. And, and you see how verse 8 fits with this, doesn't it? Verse 8 says, My soul clings to, to you. Your right hand upholds me. David sees his life as the security of his life as depending on his clinging to God. His soul clings to God. And he says, God's right hand upholds him. When David says his soul clings to God, he's using the same kind of word that is used in Genesis chapter 2 to tell us that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That means a special kind of loyalty, a special kind of warmth of affections for that person. And David is talking, saying that here about his soul in relationship to God. There is a unique loyalty in my soul towards God. There's a unique warmth of affections for God in my soul. So I'm clinging to him in that sense. And because that's true of me, the Bible says, your right hand, O God, upholds me. 
But I want you to realize David is not saying, I'm clinging to God and then he is paying me with his right hand upholding me. No, he is saying, because God's right hand upholds me, I cling to him. It's like the logic of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Walk out your salvation with fear and trembling, not so that God may walk in you, but because God is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So because God is working in you, then you can walk out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. So David is saying the same thing here. Because God's right hand upholds me, my soul can cling to God. That's your security. That's, 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 that's a motivation for pursuing God. You will never be thwarted by cancer or terrorists or anything else, or the crash of the economy, or whatever there could possibly be in this life. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Those are promises that trillions of dollars can never buy. Anything will pass away. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Great men will come and go. But Jesus is here for time and eternity. So when he says, I am with you always, don't forget the context. He is one to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he pledges to be with you always to the very end of the age. What better security could there be for a human being on the planet? So David shows us here the things that motivate him. My soul is thirsty. My eye has beheld God. My soul is satisfied. My heart is meditating. But all of that is drawing strength from the fact that I have learned from being satisfied in God. Being loved by God is more important than staying alive. And I have learned also God is my security. Nothing can cut me away from him. And you see how he says that towards the end. He is not at the mercy of his enemies, verses 9, 10, and 11b. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. That's the kind of life David was living. He does not go into the hopeless psychological tactic of denying the reality of the enemies. They are there, but he knows what their end will be because he sings in the shadow of God's wings. Now, if your heart is pursuing God, if your life is after God and you are being motivated by the fact that being loved by God is more important and more valuable than staying alive and that God is your security, that will produce two outcomes, at least in your life. First, your life will be marked by explicit praising of God. Did you see that in verse 5? My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The natural, uncoerced outcome of a life that is satisfied in God is praise to God. It's spontaneous. It's enjoyable it's what you want to do and that's why the author of hebrews will say that we should continually offer to god a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that openly profess his name you know in all the world it's increasingly becoming unpopular 
to appear on a major news outlet and say, I am a sinner lost in, in, in sin in Adam and have been saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Nobody will quote you after that. Because people think that's ridiculous and foolish and, and you are on the wrong side of history to say that. But when God has satisfied you in himself and freed and empowered you by his steadfast law, you will say that even in the face of threats of death. Because you know that that is what is true about you. Your lips will praise God. And the next thing that we see is a rejoicing soul. Something you will never see on the planet is a heart that is satisfied in God and is gloomy all the time. Satisfaction in God results in a rejoicing in God. And, and that, that, that's the theme that's running through the psalm. And David makes, makes sure to make it explicit. In verse 5 he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. It's not... It's not coerced praising of God. It's not being forced to do it. He does it joyfully. And then in verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your, in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. There is a theme of joy running here, even in the midst of suffering, even in being in the wilderness of Judah. Verse 11, But the king shall rejoice in God. So there is a theme of rejoicing here. Like Paul would say, we are hard-pressed but always rejoicing. So there's a theme of rejoicing in the Lord. The joy we have in God has just one destiny. There are so many different things that we could have that will, 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 will end up expiring. But the joy we have in God has only one destiny. It's going to one place and it is that it's going to explode and become bigger and all the more satisfying for all eternity. That's where we are headed. Because by his blood, Jesus has bought brothers and sisters for you and me, if you trust in Jesus, from every tribe and tongue and nation. And when all is said and done, we will gather with these blood-bought brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation before the throne of God and worship for all eternity. Can you imagine yourself in a worship service with people who are sinlessly perfect to a person? In a crowd that no one can number, as John tells us in Revelation 7. And that's where you're going to be worshiping. When we come to church on Sunday morning and sing, Behold our God. Or, or when my soul fears, uh, or when, my, when I fear my faith will fail. We feel a certain joy and strengthening and encouragement from hearing the other brother sing and the other sister sing. But when we get to heaven, we will not be singing from having maybe not had a good time with our wife this morning or with your son or with, with whatever. No interruptions of sin will be happening. It will be sinless perfection, lifting up voices to the Lord and praising for all eternity. That's where we are headed. And would you not be wasting your life if you are not now spending time practicing for that worship service? And the way to do that is to live a life marked by a thirst for God. A desire to put out of your life anything that disrupts communion with God and draw strength to do that from the fact that God is one who protects you and God is one who loves you no matter the circumstances of your life. If you do, you will be marked by a rejoicing heart and praising lips and you will be such a conduit of grace 
to your family and the church and every place where God places you. May God make us a people who value communion with God above anything else the world can offer. Let's pray. Father, I ask you, Lord, that you would do these things in each of our hearts. Make us a people hungry for God, thirsty for God, who want to put out of our lives just any and everything that will come in the way of fellowship with you and communion with you. Draw near, Lord, and bless us all the more and make your face shine upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.